A warning. This episode features discussions of body image, body modification, and illness that some listeners may find disturbing. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. She's a young woman, perhaps a teenager. She's standing with her head bent towards the ground, her hands wrapped firmly around the post of her heavy wooden bed. A good anchor for this daily ritual is important. She'd topple over without it, because behind her, with gritted teeth, is a maid pulling the laces of her corset ever tighter. Beneath the steel that lines the corset, her skin, fat, and organs squeeze inwards. Even her bones pinch, creak, and shift. Her breath catches. Her knuckles turn white. Her mind drifts towards those dress reform advocates, the ones who say that she doesn't need to do this, that she's oppressed by this routine. And then the laces are tied, and she looks in the mirror at her pinched little waist and flaring hips. She observes the shape she's fashioned out of flesh and steel, and she smiles. This, to her, is beauty, and it's worth the pain. She's not alone, and corsets aren't the only tool that pinch the body at the intersection of beauty and pain. For millennia, we've shaped and adorned our bodies to conform to our shifting ideals. We've nipped, tucked, and coated with chemicals. And as each new technology strives to take us farther towards that elusive mirage, physical perfection, the body has often buckled under the pressure. Fashion, for industry workers and consumers alike, has spelt death. This is The Dark Side Of, a ParCast original a show where we will delve into the seedy underbelly of pop culture icons and historical events. We aim to expose the ugly truth behind cultural moments and public figures we hold most dear, proving that there is always more to the story than meets the eye. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm Kate. Today is the first installment in a new season of The Dark Side Of. For the past 10 weeks, we delved into the dark side of the 1990s. Now we're turning our lens to something that's just as alluring as our 90s nostalgia on the surface. Fashion. Fashion is a sales industry. Glamour, cool, opportunities to showcase your personality and taste pronto for everyone around you. But fashion isn't and has never been all silk and roses. Beneath the sumptuous fabrics and silhouettes lurks all kinds of menacing dangers, from fascist politics to environmental hazards to fast-acting, wearable poison. Over the next eight weeks, we'll cover these topics and more. You can find all episodes of The Dark Side Of and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream The Dark Side Of for free on Spotify... Just open the app, tap Browse, and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. Today, we'll begin in the 19th century, when new technologies and the advent of mass production started to shape the fashion industry as we know it today. 
progress was everywhere. With metal eyelets came corset tight lacing and the striking curves of an hourglass figure. With the chemical radium came delightful glow-in-the-dark watches. But with each apparently miraculous, beautiful innovation came pain, illness, and even death. Coming up, 19th century fashion and its victims. Hi, I'm Michael Weatherly. And I'm Cody DePablo. We played Agents Tony Donozo and Ziva David on NCIS, one of the world's biggest shows. And now we're doing a rewatch podcast. This is Off Duty with guests like Sasha Alexander. I'm really happy to see you guys, by the way. Eric Olson. By the way, you broke a finger. I lost a nail. <laughs> We've never really done this. Watch and listen every Tuesday on Spotify. Foof. Back in the late 18th century, clothing was largely made to order in local dressmakers' shops or perhaps in the home. New clothes for the average person were few and far between, thanks to the high costs of materials and the tedious labor each garment demanded. Fashions certainly existed. Trends traveled slowly but surely, often from France. In the 17th century, Louis XIV had made his country the capital of European taste. But in the late 1700s, industrialization started to shift the American and European economies out of the fields and into the towns and factories, allowing fashion to take on a new meaning. It became a full-scale industry, one centralized in assembly lines that churned out standardized goods at cheap prices and then sold them to people hundreds of miles away. To anyone who had struggled to afford new clothes, this felt a lot like progress. It seemed that thanks to new technologies, society was on a one-way track forward. Surely, industrialized goods, produced more cheaply with less human labor, would elevate everyone's quality of life. And they certainly made things look pretty. So delightfully, beguilingly pretty. Take a special green dye, invented in 1814 in Germany by the Wilhelm Dye and White Lead Company. The dye, which was quickly nicknamed emerald green for its deep, vibrant color, was scores brighter than traditional plant or mineral dyes. All of Europe and America went wild for it. They were using it on wallpaper, on the boxes used to package accessories, and most of all, they were using it on women's clothing. Gloves, gowns, hair ornaments, nothing was spared the beautiful green chemical treatment. Why should any woman be deprived of an opportunity to peacock about in a colorful getup? This was the industrial age. Everyone was moving on up. But the dye had another, more worrisome nickname, arsenic green. It was made by mixing copper and arsenic trioxide, or white arsenic. And it was highly toxic. 19-year-old Matilda Scheurer worked as an artificial flower maker in London. Her job consisted of fluffing artificial leaves, 
meaning she dusted them with an arsenic green powder, turning the hat decorations from drab to glamorous. It was a good job, a reliable post in the midst of the ever-growing industrial machine. But then Matilda started to have problems. In late 1860, she came down with an alarming sickness. Matilda vomited up green water, then the whites of her eyes turned green. And as she told her doctor, in the throes of the illness, everything she looked at was green. The strange symptoms abated, but came back again and again. By November 1861, Matilda was in the sickbed for a fourth time. And by this point, it was worse than ever. Even her nails were green. The green vomit was now paired with convulsions. These continued nonstop every few minutes for hour after hour. Finally, on November 20th, after a year of maladies, Matilda died, an explosion of foam pumping its way out of every orifice on her face. Matilda's tragic fate was not the first instance of arsenic poisoning. As early as 1857, doctors had been noticing and warning that a great deal of slow poisoning was going on. But no one had listened when it was just slow poisoning. After all, their attention was traveling at the speed of fashion. There was no time to slow down. Not until something as gruesome as Matilda's death forced them to. Finally, doctors had the sensational story they needed to show the real dangers of arsenic. The papers suddenly took up the cause with a vengeance, railing against the assertion that Matilda had died by accidental poisoning. They decried the dangers of arsenic. Why were no precautions in place to protect workers from a toxic substance? Surely Matilda's four bouts of illness should have proven the danger if earlier instances of arsenic poisoning hadn't done the trick. As the magazine Punch put it, under such circumstances as these, death is evidently about as accidental as it is when resulting from a railway collision occasioned by arrangements known to be faulty. What happened to Matilda was knowingly traveling on dangerous train tracks. No one should be surprised. Various organizations took up the cause, too. Doctors studied the immense toxicity of arsenic. Images of skeletons in green ball gowns followed in the newspapers. Critics were desperate to emphasize that it wasn't just workers who were threatened by that beautiful jewel tone green. If arsenic was killing workers, it was poisoning consumers, too. Every woman in a green gown was threatened. And yet, Queen Victoria was wearing emerald. So were a host of high-society trendsetters. It was the fashion. And for many Victorians, it was easier to ignore the horror stories of gruesome factory deaths or even the ominous threat of poisoning themselves than the embarrassment of wearing a subpar dress. So Arsenic Green persisted. It wasn't until 1895, over three decades after Matilda's grisly death, that official regulations finally protected workers from arsenic exposure in England. 
The dyes themselves, meanwhile, were never officially banned. They simply fell out of vogue as other industrially produced chemicals took their place. And unfortunately, many of the other chemicals used in the early days of the fashion industry were no better than arsenic. You may have heard the phrase, mad as a hatter, likely in connection with Lewis Carroll's character from the 1865 book, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, or one of its many adaptations. You'll remember the hatter's mad tea party and all his charmingly odd ideas about unbirthdays. Perhaps you remember his distinctive top hat. These strange otherworldly features all fit seamlessly into Carroll's off-kilter dreamscape. But the Mad Hatter archetype Carol cemented in our cultural consciousness wasn't actually a product of the writer's inventive mind. He modeled it after the real-world Hatters of the 18th and 19th centuries. In the 18th century, hat makers incorporated an innovative new chemical into their production process, mercury nitrate. It was useful for transforming the fur coats of small animals into felt. As demand for stylish clothing accelerated alongside the Industrial Age, that was more of a blessing than ever. But it didn't take long for some strange ailments to start afflicting hatmakers. They experienced tremors, or as they were nicknamed, hatter's shakes. Then there were the speech problems, the hallucinations, and the dangerous mental instability. No one demonstrates this more clearly than a certain Thomas Boston Corbett. Corbett immigrated to New York in 1840, where he worked as a hatter, married, and was set to become a father. But then his wife died in childbirth. When the baby didn't make it either, Corbett was left alone with his hats and the mercury nitrate he breathed in as he made them, day in and day out. At first, his behavior wasn't unlike other bereaved men. He started drinking heavily. But then it turned stranger. One night in the 1850s, wandering the streets while intoxicated, he spoke with God. Soon after, in 1858, again wandering the streets, he encountered some sex workers and was appalled by his own excitement at the sight of the women. His reaction, in keeping with the Spirit of God who spoke to him, was self-castration. Unfortunately, that wasn't the dramatic peak of Corbett's story. He went on to fight in the Civil War and was eventually part of the cavalry unit assigned to hunt down President Abraham Lincoln's assassin. But when he found John Wilkes Booth, Corbett didn't capture him. Completely unprompted and against his orders, Corbett shot to kill. Killing John Wilkes Booth was unfortunately not Corbett's last act of unwarranted violence. But this tendency wasn't simply the result of a bad temper. It was due to mental health issues. Eventually, Corbett ended up in a mental institute. Historians today speculate that Corbett was not just an historic killer, but also a victim of mercury poisoning, a real-life mad hatter whose health 
was decimated by his profession. Corbett would be far from the only one. The demand for men's and women's felt hats was too high to give up the convenience of mercury nitrate in processing animal pelts. So the hatters worked on, inhaling the fumes. Fashion, as usual, was being propelled forward by science. Or was it backwards? Fashion and the lives of the people that produced it were at the mercy of the industrial sciences that were still in their infancy, especially when it came to safety standards. It was only in the early years of the 20th century that mercury nitrate, like arsenic, slowly fell out of fashion. But not because the reverence for the new had gone away. More so because there were more new technologies, new fashions, and slowly, new regulations. But if the widespread, under-regulated use of arsenic and mercury nitrate teaches us anything about the early days of modern fashion, it's that the hunger for the look du jour can kill. Coming up, another deadly trend which proves that all that glitters is not gold. Hi, it's Richard. Ready to hear about my new favorite Spotify original from Parcast? It's called Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers, and it uncovers the most damning details surrounding history's most high-profile leaders. Every Tuesday through the 2020 election, host Ashley Flowers shines a light on the darker side of the American presidency. From torrid love affairs and contemptible corruption to shocking cover-ups and even murder, she'll expose the personal and professional controversies you may never knew existed. You'll hear some wildly true stories about presidents such as Richard Nixon, George Washington, Teddy Roosevelt, JFK, and more. Very Presidential highlights the exploits you never learned in history class, but probably should have. Family drama, personal vices, dirty secrets. These presidents may have run, but they most certainly can't hide. Follow Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers, free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the story. In the 19th century, industrialization and technological breakthroughs led to a host of new chemicals in consumer goods, like clothing. Amongst these chemicals were arsenic and mercury nitrate. They could be dangerous for consumers. In 1871, one woman pulled off her chic green gloves to find her hands covered in blisters. But the danger was often greatest for the workers who made the goods a growing fashion market demanded. This trend continued as the 19th century sped into the 20th. In 1898, chemist Marie Curie discovered a new substance called radium. Before long, doctors were extolling its health benefits. It was going into cancer treatments, toothpastes, even baby clothes. And by 1916, a new factory hopped aboard the radium train. 
Located in New Jersey and operated by a company called the United States Radium Corporation, or USRC, the factory hired 70 women and quickly set a brand new trend. The USRC was producing watches with glow-in-the-dark faces. Their tiny numbers were painted with equally tiny brushes dipped in radium-laced paint. To keep the brushes sharp between each number on the dials, the factory workers were taught to sharpen the tips with their lips. A quick, efficient method, perhaps. But it also meant that the women, many of them teenagers, were ingesting radium every day. As far as the factory and its workers were concerned, that was just fine. Small amounts of radium were, after all, healthful, according to most doctors. Meanwhile, consumers were going wild for glow-in-the-dark watches. They were new, playful, a definite product of industrialized progress. Soon enough, there were thousands of so-called radium girls at factories around the United States working to churn out the glowing clock faces and all sharpening their brushes with pursed lips. These radium girls also garnered another nickname, Ghost Girls. At first, the name came from the iridescent shimmer the radium factory cast over its workers and their clothes, skin, and teeth. It was a positive moniker. Every teenage factory worker wished she was a ghost girl. What could be more glamorous than glowing, after all? But it quickly became evident that the nickname was more apt than anyone could have predicted. A few years into the radium watch fad, by the 1920s, the radium girls were starting to experience unusually high levels of fatigue and toothaches. In 1922, 24-year-old Molly Magia had to leave work. Her teeth were in agony. But when the dentist pulled one tooth, another started to hurt. When the teeth were extracted, open sores took their place, leaving her mouth full of blood and pus. On top of that, Molly's body ached all over. Her limbs were hurt so badly she couldn't walk. By May, her condition had deteriorated. Her mouth and even some of the bones in her ears were, quote, one large abscess. When the doctor prodded her jawbone, it snapped. It was so brittle that he didn't need to perform surgery to extract it. He was able to simply lift it out of her mouth. By September, the appalling disease that plagued Molly had spread to her throat. Tragically, an eruption of blood in her mouth one day was the end. It killed her. Molly's body, though, wasn't the only one being ravaged by the disease. She'd just been the first radium girl to succumb to its horrors. More and more USRC workers were coming down with similar health issues, turning from glamorously glittering specters to bedridden shadows of their former healthy selves. It didn't take long for other women to follow Molly to the grave. Meanwhile, USRC ignored the problem. These girls were getting sick from something, yes, but it couldn't be radium. Radium was healthful. And if there was a problem, well, 
that would hurt business, which would be bad for everyone. The people did love their luminous watches. No, it couldn't be a radium problem. It wasn't until 1924, after two years of sickening and dying factory girls, that USRC finally commissioned an outside expert to examine the connection between radium and the radium girl's sickness. Not that this was a good faith effort, of course. USRC wanted to silence the rumors about their negligence, not safeguard their young employees. When the expert they'd hired concluded that there was indeed a deadly connection between radium and the factory workers' illness, the company simply commissioned another report, hoping for more favorable results. Their plan worked. When the Department of Labor came calling, USRC brushed the first report's findings under the rug. Misleading the public and regulatory agencies could only work for so long, however. By 1925, new studies about the effects of radium had definitely proved that the substance was toxic and even detailed how the appalling process worked. Radium was boring holes into the radium girl's bones, attacking them from the inside. It honeycombed its way through their bodies, shining through so they glowed from the inside. By 1928, there were 16 confirmed deaths from radium dial painting. A group of radium girls took legal action against USRC, and the suit was settled in their favor, creating important legal precedent for occupational hazard protections. Women would no longer be expected to eat radium at work. Their employers were responsible for their safety on the job. Gradually, radium was phased out of watchmaking entirely, and the days of the radium girls turned into an eerie memory. But if the issue of radium watches was apparently solved, the fashion culture that fomented the trend was far from gone. Consumers still wanted whatever was new. They weren't worried about ensuring workers were safe. Many of them weren't thinking about who was making their garments at all, much less the cost those workers were paying for their jobs. In part, it was a question of the distance industrialized production created. Once, consumers had known the hat maker or the watchmaker personally. Now, they only knew the shop girls at the department store. If turning a blind eye was becoming a theme, that was no more apparent than the fact that consumers weren't even worried about their own safety. The hurt that started on the factory floors of fashion inevitably flooded streets and seeped into private homes, where consumers repeatedly proved that they believed beauty was worth nearly any price, even when they were the ones that ended up suffering. No technology exemplifies that better than the corset. Perhaps one of the most enduring fashion technologies, the corset, in one form or another, has been around since the early Middle Ages. Over the centuries, the amount of constriction in these garments shifted, perhaps peaking with the stiff, whalebone constructions of the 18th century. But until the 19th century, corsets were rarely laced too tightly. This was in part due to technical limitations of early corsets, 
The holes through which the garments were laced were secured with thread, like buttonholes. If the laces were pulled too tight, the pressure ripped through those holes. It was only in the 19th century that a miraculous new technology, metal eyelets firmly secured to the holes through which the corsets were laced, opened the gates for a new approach to corsetry, tight lacing. Tight lacing is how many of us today think of corseting. Take that enduring scene from 1939's Gone with the Wind. The film shows its heroine, Scarlett O'Hara, clutching her bedpost as her slave yanks the cords of her corset as tight as can be. The story takes place in the 19th century, and it showcases a scene that took place all across the Western world during the era, not just in the slave-holding South. Maids nationwide were pulling their mistresses' laces tight. Even in less affluent households, on special occasions, sisters or mothers shouldered the task of squeezing their loved ones into these constricting undergarments. British actress Kitty Tyrell, too, was no exception. December 26, 1894 was just another performance night for her, and just another night she had to lace up her corset. She was playing King Rat that night, the villain of a play called Dick Whittington and His Cat. At 7.30 p.m., Kitty stepped onto stage, apparently as sprightly as ever. But a stagehand thought that beneath the acting, she looked particularly tired. By the end of the second act, she was still holding up. But as soon as she twirled off stage, Kitty collapsed in a heap and cried out for her husband, Oh, Harry, do unfasten me. I'm dying. Harry, alarmed, did indeed unfasten his wife. But his wife was an actress. He might have imagined that she wasn't really dying, just putting on a bit of a drama about her discomfort. Unfortunately, he would have been wrong. She passed out, could not be revived, and at 9 p.m., a local doctor proclaimed her dead. The coroner later explained that the corset, specifically its tight lacing, had aggravated an existing heart condition to the point that it killed her. Kitty Tyrell was not alone. Tight lacing remained popular from the 1830s through the end of the 19th century. Unlike other trends, trim waists never went out of style. And every time a waist was cinched, women were crushing their organs and even displacing their ribs. All in the name of fashion. It's tempting to say that this mania for keeping up with the trends was based in vanity. But meeting societal beauty standards has always been about more than that. With that perfect tiny waist and hourglass silhouette, women hoped that they would achieve beauty. By extension, they could hope to get a better shot at everything society tied to beauty. For a 19th century woman, these weren't small aspirations. Success, happiness, and love all hung in the balance. Meaning, fashion wasn't just a private game of looking good and feeling pretty. It was a social game, and the stakes were a secure place in society. For some, dressing appropriately even signaled virtue. 
Loose women might wear loose, comfortable clothing, but a lady kept her body in check, controlled it. In her quest for beauty and virtue, a woman might just pay whatever price the fashion industry demanded. And just like with radium, people were often aware of the dangerous effects of the corset, at least by the end of the century, like when Kitty died. Doctors soberly explained that tight lacing could atrophy back muscles, ruin digestion, and even deform ribs. Activists picked up on the social implications of these physical effects, too. As Susan B. Anthony put it, I can see no business avocation in which a woman in her present dress can possibly earn equal wages with man. But for many women, neither the physical nor social implications of reshaping their bodies was as pressing as the need to meet the beauty standards of their age. Especially not when they were surrounded by messages supporting corsetry far more often than those deriding it. Coming up, one of the burgeoning fashion industry's most powerful weapons, advertising. Now, back to the story. Nineteenth-century fashions were often deadly. Thanks to trends ranging from radium watches to corsets, factory workers and consumers alike were turning into literal fashion victims. Consumers weren't ignorant about the dangers of contemporary fashions. Scientists and doctors ran tests and published warnings trying to dissuade customers from the worst of the trends. Even suffragettes like Susan B. Anthony threw their hats into the ring, telling women to loosen their oppressive laces. But medical journals and op-eds touting warnings were frightening and dry, especially compared to another new missive encouraging the mania for the fresh and the beautiful a genre of media that was often better illustrated, easier to read, and generally more beguiling, advertisements. In the 19th century, a growing middle class led to an increase in ladies' magazines. These periodicals ran the gamut, catering to different audiences across Europe and America. They typically presented articles on subjects like high society gossip, serialized fiction, and embroidery patterns. Most importantly, they propped up their circulation not just through subscription fees, but through advertisements. It was a match made in heaven. Advertisements presented the perfect opportunity for a growing magazine industry to support itself and for a burgeoning fashion industry to peddle its wares. Ads were so useful for industrialists and smaller producers alike that by the second half of the 19th century, entire magazines made up of ads, catalogs, were circulating widely, and colorful, artfully designed posters made their first appearances. While there were advertisements for almost every product being sold, from salt to Sears houses, they were most often for the kinds of home goods women purchased. These included soaps and toothpastes, clothing items like gloves and slippers, and of course, corsets. 
But 19th century advertisements, like the centuries of ads to follow, were far from neutral presentations of available wares. In fact, in the 19th century, there were none of the restrictions on advertising that sanction company transparency today. Anything went when it came to ad copy. And the growing fashion industry saw a perfect way to cover for any issues with their products. Advertisements positively extolled the virtues, real or invented, of corsets, brilliant arsenic green gowns, and lovely felt hats, along with everything else they were trying to sell. Corsets weren't a detriment to health. They were healthful, the ads promised. Ads also emphasized the happiness and success of the girls and women using their products. They were deliberately playing into pre-existing social narratives linking beauty with success. And consumers ate the content up. While Susan B. Anthony's warnings might show up in an editorial, advertisements were far easier to digest. Just sit down, flip through a few pages, and collect some pictures for your dreams. Advertisements, after all, were determined to be beguiling enough to make it into your dreams. Take this perfumer's advertisement. If our lotion, unlike the waters of the fountain of youth, has no power to wash away the accumulated years, at least it does have, in addition to other merits, the inestimable advantage, we believe, of restoring to the full extent of its former radiance the lost majesty of that consummate entity, that masterpiece of creation which, with the elegance, purity, and grace of its forms, makes up the lovelier half of humanity. Developed above all in the interests of ladies, our fragrance unites all that is necessary to revive, foster, and enhance natural attractions. It's language from another time, but even through the old-timey words, you can hear the over-the-top promises. Youth, grace, enhancing natural attractions. As Walter Benjamin put it in his iconic Arcades project, the advertisement is the ruse by which the dream forces itself on industry. Through the advertisement, the world of prefab industrial goods turned from a grimy, dangerous experiment into magic. Magic that, for the average consumer, was impossible to resist. People, and especially women, who often made home-related purchases like clothing, were utterly drawn in by fashion's newest promotional tools. They purchased what they were told, and so began an endless cycle of production and consumption. Not to say that the public stayed entirely gullible. As the eventual restrictions on chemicals like arsenic and mercury nitrate demonstrate, people did start to question the promises of fashion's favorite products. And over the years, the industry has been called out again and again for endangering workers and consumers alike. But most of those questions came in the 20th century. And is it such a surprise that it took people some time to catch on to the dark side of fashion? When something sounds or looks so good, it's easier to believe than to question. 
Even today, after being fed a steady diet of ads for products that don't live up to the hype, we still fall prey to the shiny traps that advertisers and the fashion industry set for us. It's hard not to. They've gotten more subtle, more sophisticated. But they all follow the pattern of big promises and often disappointing results. Summed up most clearly by the fact that we're still buying corsets, albeit in a new, physically less destructive form, shapewear. These contemporary corsets are peddled with promises of comfort and beauty, just like their tight-laced cousins from the 19th century. And made of stiff but stretchy materials, they are indeed more comfortable and less detrimental to health than their precursors. But even without any bone-crunching effects, modern shapewear has its own deadly powers, especially when combined with other contemporary methods of reshaping the body, like cosmetic surgery. These trends have joined forces to create serious byproducts, like unrealistic beauty standards. Eating disorders, too, can follow those standards like clockwork. As you'll see over the course of this season of The Dark Side Of, our ethics and bodies linger at the center of a destructive matrix of beauty and pain. In fact, the existence of the body has been so warped by the vagaries and follies of fashion that it may not even really exist. As fashion historian Denis Bruna put it, there is no natural body, but only a cultural body. The body is a reflection of the society that presided over its creation. Thanks to this intimate relationship between trends, the physical body, and the cultural zeitgeist, fashion has turned the human form into a product to be shaped and molded, sometimes at enormous cost. It's altered us again and again, for the good, for the bad, and sometimes for the ugly. We see these dark socio-political implications of fashion in the complex life cycles of some of our favorite fabrics like denim, in the fashion industry's biggest events like Fashion Week and the Victoria's Secret Fashion Show, and even in the tragic lives of our favorite designers like Alexander McQueen. All that and more is coming your way this season on The Dark Side Of... Thanks for listening. Next week, we're delving into some of the biggest European designers of all time, like Coco Chanel and Hugo Boss. These remarkable talents are remembered for their positive contributions to fashion. But they came of age during the dark chaos of World War II. And they picked the wrong side, forever weaving a strand of Nazi hate into the elegant silhouettes of their tailored jackets. You can find more episodes of The Dark Side Of for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. Just open the app and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. We'll see you next time. 
The Dark Side Of was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Brian Golub, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of The Dark Side Of was written by Nora Battelle, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. Hi, it's Richard, and I'm back to remind you to check out the new Spotify original from Parcast, Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers. Every Tuesday through the 2020 election, host Ashley Flowers shines a light on the darker side of the American presidency, exposing wildly true stories about history's most high-profile leaders. There's torrid love affairs, shocking blackmail schemes, and even murder. I think you're really going to get a kick out of it. To hear more, follow Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.